This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. Nationwide, there are over 100,000 people on waiting lists for organ donations, and for some, time can simply run out. And kidneys are among the organs with the greatest demand and the greatest transplant success. Here to tell us more about all of this is Dr. Reiner Grusner. He is the Division Chief of Transplant Services at Upstate Medical University and a professor of surgery. Welcome, Dr. Grusner. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on the show. So nationwide kidneys seem to be in very high demand. Why is this happening? Why do we have a shortage nationwide? Well, we have a shortage for many reasons. Um, um, organ transplants can be done either from deceased donors or from living donors. Currently, as you mentioned, we have over 100,000 people waiting for a kidney transplant. We perform about 17,000 a year in the United States. Out of those 17,000, about two-thirds are from deceased donors, one-third is from living donors. So clearly, we can expand in both directions. Uh, there, there are clearly advantages of the living-related kidney transplants. If you look at the half-lives, meaning 50% survival and function, uh, 50% graft function kidney still functioning for a deceased donor kidney is about 8 to 9 years. For a living donor transplant, about 18 to 19 years. So much longer life. Much longer. And if you happen to have an identical twin or a twin sibling, it's about 28 years, so basically wow. a kidney for life. So when I talk about half-lives, that means 50% make it up to 8 or 9 years in case of deceased donors, or uh, 17, 18 years with a living donor, and 15 uh, and 50% go beyond that. So we actually do have an ever-growing number of patients out there because the first kidney transplants, as you know, have been done in the 1950s, um, have had and enjoyed kidney function for 30 or 40 years. So why is this important? <coughs> the mortality on dialysis is much higher than after a kidney transplant. Um, the other advantage of kidney transplantation is um, they are cheaper than dialysis, and people can go back to work and just enjoy a normal lifestyle again, because as you can imagine, if you go on dialysis three times a week, there's You're only tied so much. To the machine. Absolutely. So, I mean, that's, that's uh, why. Now, in case of kidney transplantation, there's the huge advantage that we have a fallback option, which is dialysis. Not ideal, not perfect, um, associated with a higher mortality rate and everything else that I mentioned, but it's not a life or death situation. Like for liver heart. transplantation heart. or heart or lungs, we don't have a fallback situation, and that makes it even more dramatic. And many of these um, individual fates are just heartbreaking. So whoever has a friend or someone who is on dialysis should give thought to maybe donating mm-hmm. a kidney or, in the future, um, um, giving approval for a loved one who is deceased to donate organs because every patient who dies can potentially save the lives of up to 10 people. With the new technology, is it easier to find a match these days in terms of being able to match people? Yes, I, I think in general um, we have made great strides in improving the allocation of organs in such a way that people on an individual basis benefit from it much more than 20 or 30 years ago. Um, so, But despite the fact that on an individual basis we have made great improvements, overall the numbers of kidney transplant have been stagnant since the early 2000s. So the demand has grown, but the supply has not been. Absolutely. 
you know, commensurate. It hasn't Correct. really... In, in, Correct. Correct. What, I mean, are there myths attached to it? What seems to stand in the way, for example, of people either donating, either living while they are alive or in the, in, in the event of their death? Well, a multitude of, of um, issues. First of all, I think um, even now public awareness um, is still somewhat guarded as to what happens if I die, what happens if I donate. Now, to make it absolutely clear, the chances for you donating a kidney today and dying from the procedure is the same as you driving home today or if you happen to be behind the steering wheel right now being involved in a fatal car accident. Well, can it happen? Anything can happen. But the risk of dying after donating or by donating a kidney is about 1 in 10,000. Wow. So it is, it is, it is very, very um, low. And um, in fact, one of the major issues that we're dealing with is is are the medical issues of donors. Frequently we have plenty of donors, but they do not qualify because of their own medical issues. What we want is is um, donors that are in good health so that they are not jeopardized by donating a kidney. And the interesting thing is because these patients tend to be um, followed up for another five, 10 years, 20 years or so, they have a longer life expectancies than the regular population. Really? So the benefit is, is I mean, you get your yearly updates, and by <laughs> doing so, I mean, if anything happens, I mean, you'll, you'll usually, it's usually caught in an early stage. The other thing is, if you, if you have only one kidney left, ever develop a kidney disease, you will automatically go up to the um, top of the list and have not to wait five or six so? years. Wow. Absolutely, five or six years. So you will get that organ relatively quickly as a perk, basically, for having been a donor. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm Linda Cohen here with transplant surgeon Dr. Reiner Grusener. We're talking about kidney transplants and some others, as we'll get on in a minute. But um, at this point, it seems to me that not enough people are considering organ donation, as you said, because of fear but is it, and because of the health issues. But is there also, are there other myths that stand in the way in terms of, I don't know, fear of what might happen to them should they put the, their name on a list? I mean, does that seem to enter into it at all? Well, I, I think cultural and religious um, reasons um, come into play. Um, if we look at the ethnic backgrounds um, in the U.S., uh, there are certain groups that um, have a higher donation rate than others. Uh, we just have to accept that. But we can work on it. Um, about uh, 20, 30 years ago, most living donor transplants were done from uh, related uh, people, uh, meaning s siblings, parents, uh, grandparents, and so forth. But we have opened it up to now spouses, friends, um, and even good Samaritans, people that yeah, come up registries. and say, I want, yeah. exactly, I want to donate a kidney. And then they go into a system, unless they want to make a direct um, donation to someone they happen to know, they then um, um, would be um, looking at a system where that kidney is allocated according to the highest priority. But uh, there, are, there are many of these good Samaritans out there that give another human being a chance of a second life. And uh, they're really our, our heroes because, I mean, they undergo the procedure um, um, just for, for reasons of being a very good person, wanting to help someone else. 
And uh, that number is slowly growing. It is obviously not there yet to close the gap between the 17,000 transfer that we do and the uh, remaining 80,000 that are waiting. But I think awareness is increasing in that regard. And I'm sure, Linda, you have me on the show today to uh, make clear to everyone that this is an option. Uh, insurance companies cover the costs for living donation. And as I mentioned, the risk of a devastating complication or even death of a donor is minimal and probably greater than 1 in 10,000. I think it's very reassuring. So as the division chief now of transplant services here, what other transplants are you looking to introduce or being considered for Upstate at this point? Because I know there are some really on the docket. Yeah. Well, it's, it's not just me. <clears throat> I only came here because there was institutional support and a desire to make transplantation grow. Now, you got obviously uh, a number of excellent uh, programs in the, in the city, but Upstate New, New York, York City. In New York City. Um, but upstate and central New York still has a need. <clears throat> um, I'll give you a few examples. Um, there is not a single major pancreas transplant center in all of New York, and pancreas transplants are done for patients with diabetes. Explain that just briefly. What, you know, you're saying for patients with diabetes, what does a pancreas transplant do? Is it the entire pa uh, pancreas that's replaced or parts of it? Well, let, let me uh, go back then. Um, Diabetes is one of the leading causes of death, um, the number one reason for blindness, for um, amputations, for strokes, for MIs, and so forth, um, and the number one reason for end-stage renal failure. So a good number of patients who need a kidney are also considered for a pancreas transplant. But rather than waiting until the kidney fails, you may want to be proactive and do a pancreas transplant. And by doing so, the patient is no longer diabetic. We primarily do it for patients that are on insulin, high doses of insulin that have problems controlling their blood sugar levels. And there are these wide oscillations between 20 and 1,000. And people, no matter how hard they work with their endocrinologist, just can't control it. So those are patients that can be considered for a pancreas transplant. It's very difficult for a, for a diabetic patient to understand that once you have the transplant, you're no longer diabetic. You suddenly can drink a Coke. You can eat a cookie. You don't have to check your blood sugar three, six, eight times a day. You don't have to inject three, six times a day. You don't have to have sensors and all that. So, I mean, there are many advantages. Um, many people don't know about it because it's a surgical procedure and diabetes is not considered a surgical disease. And uh, there are also misconceptions as to uh, that it may be a dangerous procedure. But, um, so I help us clarify that. So is it dangerous, first of all? No, no, it is not dangerous. And the risk of dying within the first year, within the first year, is less than 5% for all comers. Now compare that to the regular diabetic population. It is much higher. Now, we of course select the patient that undergo a pancreas transplant very carefully, but uh, um, it is the only way today that will establish normal glycemia as we know it. Uh, and just to interrupt you for a moment, sure. so are we replacing the entire pancreas there, or are there parts of the pancreas? No, that we, are, we are replacing the entire pancreas. We are not removing the native pancreas. The native pancreas remains in place because only 2% of the native pancreas produce the produce insulin, insulin. the, the so-called islets. 98% are um, for the digestion of food, secreting enzymes and so forth. So the pancreas, like the kidney, is added to what we already have. It's not like the liver or the heart where we replace those organs. I don't want to run out of time, but I want to ask a couple of questions about this. So 
Is it difficult then to find donors or pan- obviously you can't, it's not a living donor. So is there a, a, is there a shortage similar to the, the sh- shortage of kidneys with these types of transplants? No, interestingly enough, Linda, there is not a shortage. We do only about 1,000 pancreas transplants a year, and we have about 7,000 donors a year. Really? So, I mean, there is there's room to grow. And there's also room to grow with islet transplants where we just transplant the cell that produces the insulin. However, That's islet, transplants. islet transplants. So very often this is considered um, um, a vi- another viable option, but the results short and long term are not as good with islets as they are with pancreas transplants. So the islet transplants are usually reserved for people that have more comorbidities that should not undergo <clears throat> a major surgical procedure because of the increased morbidity and mortality risk. So for a diabetic patient who is on insulin uh, and, and, and high dose of insulin, whose diabetes is not controlled well by whatever exogenous insulin administration is given. Um, pancreas and in the future, islet transplantation here at Upstate is an option. So that's very, very exciting, and it sounds like something that is on the, on the docket to, to start that, pretty soon. That is correct. We will um, establish an islet, um, uh, uh, islet transplant laboratory that is both for patients that have diabetes but also for patients that have chronic pancreatitis, a disease of the pancreas that eventually cripples the pancreas. The patients are in chronic pain, and the only procedure that really helps is to remove the entire pancreas with the side effect of creating surgically induced diabetes mellitus. So for those patients, we take the pancreas out, we preserve the eyes, and we give them back. So the the lab will be in construction over the next few months, and I hope that um, over the coming year, probably July or a little bit later of 2016, we will be in operation and we will offer islet transplantation for diabetic patients and islet transplantation for patients with chronic pancreatitis. That is very exciting news. I have one last question, and we don't want to run out of time. You're also thinking about, in the future, some kind of a liver transplantation program. Briefly tell us about that. Well, I think there is a need for liver transplantation in Syracuse and the surrounding. There is clearly a need for liver transplantation in children in all of upstate and central um, uh, New York because from Buffalo to Albany, there is not a single center that does pediatric liver transplants. So I think uh, we are going to work, again, the entire institution is committed to to that um, on a program that eventually will allow patients in this this area to undergo a transplant procedure for end-stage liver disease. Rather than having to travel to New York City, uh, there is a a program at Rochester. They're doing about 20 to 30 liver transplants, but there's a much higher demand if you look at the population from Buffalo to Albany, probably five or six million people. And uh, New York City is 250, 260 miles uh, away. Um, People would have to stay there with their family members in hotels and so forth. Very cumbersome, very expensive. So I think there's clearly a need to establish a major program here in upstate New York. Well, it's very exciting that you came in and shared all this with us. It's very exciting news, all of it. So I thank you very much for coming. My guest has been Dr. Reiner Grusner. He is the, uh, the Division Chief of Transplant Services at Upstate Medical University and a professor of surgery. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air.